This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back. I'm Kent Smothers, professor here at the Wharton School, and you're listening to your Money Business Radio Series XM 111. Want some advice what to do with your money? Want to know how to save it, invest it, buy insurance, get in the will, paying down debts, really anything related to your finances, just give me a call. Love to talk to you about it here at 1 844 That's 1 And we'll talk about your own financial situation. Welcome to the show, David Frisch, who is the president of Frisch Financial Group in New York City, and which he founded in 1999. They also have locations uh, in other places in uh, New York, including Melville, White Plains, and a location as well in Tampa, Florida. Like all other advisors on this show, he is fee-only. Again, only fee-only is what you we want you to memorize. And he uh, specializes in lots of things, including investment management, portfolio allocation strategies, financial planning, divorce planning, stock option planning, and executive uh, compensation strategies. So welcome to the show, David. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. And I'll go back to the full line. So just a second here before David uh, doing that, you know, just tell us a little a bit about your firm. And if you, in particular, if you have a typical client, what's he or she like? Well, we have, um, as you said, we are fee-only. Yep. Uh, we've got, we work with about 450 families. We have three offices around the New York metropolitan area and an office in Tampa. Uh, we cater to the uh, high net worth families of a million dollars or more and basically assist them on their investment management and financial planning needs. Yeah, great. And speaking of David Frisch, again, president of Frisch Financial Group in New York City and locations elsewhere. And again, you don't have to have a million bucks to give us a call here. I'd love to answer questions about anything related to your finances live on Tuesdays. So give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And let me go to Jim calling from Oklahoma. How can I help you, Jim? Hi, guys. Uh, 49 years old, uh, married, a little background info about a household uh, income of about $290,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And recently, uh, I took a trip to Vegas last month and was lucky enough to actually hit uh, a jackpot on a slot machine for for about eighty grand. Yeah. So I elected uh, not for the casino to take out uh, the withholding uh, for federal and took the whole check. So given kind of uh, where I'm at, what's sort of some best strategies to mitigate some of the uh, taxes and what I can do here? Yeah, I mean, it, it, do you give mind that this winnings are definitely uh, tax like uh, kind of regular income. It sounds like you're also in the high-ish uh, 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 tax uh, uh, bracket um, as well. Let me ask you, Jim, about things like charitable giving. Do you have uh, – what does charitable giving kind of look like uh, uh, for you? Um, without looking at past returns, I'd say it's somewhere around twelve thousand a year. Twelve thousand a year, okay. And you know, there there might be. If, have you ever set up a donor advised fund? 
No. Okay. Because um, there might be some opportunities there um, a- a- as well. Um, and so the r- real question is, <laughs> is there a way legally, I assume that's, we want to you know, do this legally, um, of course, uh, it, uh, how to kind of deal with some of the tax winnings and taxes around that, especially given that this could also bump you up into a higher tax bracket. I'm assuming, uh, Jim, you, you won this money this uh, 2018, right? Correct. Okay. So we're not talking about tax planning for last year. We're talking about um, this year. David, your uh, your thoughts. Yeah, it's a a good question. Number one, gambling losses are deductible to the extent of gambling winnings. So if you won 80,000 on a slot machine, but you may have lost five or 10,000 with other games, as long as the casino gives you documentation for the loss, you are allowed to offset the 80 by the amount of the loss. the other thing you're, you're also going to want to do, just in terms of making sure that there will be tax liability uh, that may be due uh, either in April of 19 or may need to be paid in estimated payments of this year, is just separate some of the tax liability and just make sure it's available for uh, for paying the li- paying the taxes. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. In particular, uh, a lot of people don't realize to do this, uh, a Jim, but you know you should always um, you know, keep documentation about chips that you buy and other things like that, um, in order to really establish losses along the way. Um, and by the way, these losses, you know, uh, typically uh, how they can be counted against regular income is pretty limited, but you can also carry forward um, losses just like any business loss and things like that um, uh, to use potentially against future winnings and so forth. So that's kind of a broader remark to the listening audience that, you know, uh, bad news, you just lost money in Nevada. Um, uh, offset, mitigate some of the bad news potentially if you ever won in the future. Not that we would recommend people going to Las Vegas in the show, but if you ever won, um, you can uh, use some of those losses to offset uh, future uh, gains. And so, uh, Jim, did you have any losses kind of during the trip? Um, not really, about $500. Okay. And did you have other losses during the year itself? Um, no. Okay. All right. It looks like you did uh, uh, well for yourself. I mean, here's one potential strategy. Uh, the real kicker here is you're getting pushed into potentially a higher tax bracket. It's, it's not just the $80,000. Hey, that's goodness. I always tell people when you you know, you're afraid of the tax bill, but it's usually because of good news you got some money here. Um, one thing that you can potentially do is essentially set up a, if you already know you're going to give, you know, 12 to 15 grand over the next several years is, you know, setting up a donor advised fund. And so in particular, you uh, take that, take those winnings, you put it into a donor advised fund, which you can get from Fidelity. Uh, in fact, Fidelity Charitable is now the biggest charity in the United States. It's actually bigger than United Way. Or if Vanguard Charitable and lots of, you know, most of these uh, firms, um, discount brokers have corresponding donor advised funds. And what you do is you deposit the money into the donor advised funds. Since it's actual cash, um, how you can use that money is not as quite restrictive as you use appreciated stock. Um, and the key about that is that you have basically five years. Um, to distribute that money uh, uh, to the different charities. But technically speaking, if you were to put all $80,000, for example, I'm not saying you should do this, but if you were to put all $80,000 into a donor-advised fund uh, today, um, it is like you are making that entire charitable contribution of $80,000 this year. 
you don't have to, however, distribute that money. You have five years to actually distribute that money. Um, and so it, the idea is that if you were going to give, you know, roughly 15000 bucks a year to the next, you know, to various charities, um, you basically, you know, that's $75,000 over the next five years you're going to give away anyway, um, you know, Kick that up to eighty thousand because you're feeling so rich and uh, uh, or whatever amount that you are trying to avoid paying taxes on, and you put that money in this year. You in fact um, take the entire write-off um, against your earnings this year. Uh, if it was appreciated stock, you'd be limited up to thirty percent of your AGI. If it's because it's uh, it's actual cash, you can go all the way up to fifty percent of your AGI. AGI. You said your household income is two hundred ninety thousand. You're going to be well below that, and you can in fact then um, actually distribute that. Money Money. Even though you get the full write-off this year, you get to distribute that money over the next five years. Keep in mind when you actually do that, it's no longer your money. That's why you get the full write-off this year. You're just simply making recommendations to Vanguard, you know, Fidelity, and so forth about how to use that money um, in the future. But n most of the time, vast majority of the time, they're going to follow your recommendations. Only if there's some hooks or crazy things that you're demanding um, that they either think is illegal or you're giving it to a charity that you run, for example, or things like that. Um, you know, uh, that that's where, um, you know, you, you have to be a little bit more careful about. But if it's standard charity, it could be to, you know, church, synagogue, you know, uh, foreign, you know, uh, 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 orphanages, things like that. As long as they're publicly, uh, they're recognized as a public charity by the United States. So if they're a foreign orphanage, they have an entity in the United States that is a tax-deductible uh, entity, um, you can use them. And uh, and so that's that's probably the direction I would be leaning. I've been using my own donor-advised fund fairly strategically about taxes uh, recently myself. Is that helpful, Jim? Yeah, it is. Very much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for calling. I really appreciate it. And by the way, you can always Google my name on the Wall Street Journal app if you're especially behind the paywall. I have a uh, article there on donor advised funds maybe a, a month or two uh, ago. Again, speaking with David Fresh, who's the president of Fresh Financial Group uh, in New York City in the uh, offices in Melville, White's Plains, as well as Tampa, Florida. Uh, doing a great job answering questions. Give me a call. Live on Tuesdays at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Jenny calling from California. How can we help you, Jenny? Oh, hi. Yes, I'm calling. Um, I was listening to your show today, and a woman called in earlier and has a similar situation um, maybe that I have. Um, I'm 55 years old. I'm a teacher. I'm going to retire um, at 61 and a half. All right. And uh, with 30 years um, service credit, so right. um, I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, and but sad to I'm leave your, your lovely children. That's... <laughs> I know, but I'm ready. I've been doing this a long time. It's, it's been it's been great, though. I I really love being a teacher. Um, you know, but what struck me uh, is that she's also she's also a widow. I'm mm. a widow as well, mm. and I believe that I will be able to collect my husband's social security. Yeah. I will also be able to collect as well because I worked uh, before I taught. Yes. So I was just curious how how that works. 
Yeah, yeah, and and that's uh, really figuring out um, your Social Security claiming strategy for Social Security. Uh, that was repetitive. Uh, claiming out, uh, figuring out your claim, optimal claiming strategy for Social Security is really, really crucial here because claiming too early um, has a big haircut relative to claiming uh, later. So you said you're a teacher. Um, I'm assuming that, therefore, you're getting that pension through the CalSTRS or one of the teacher funds. Is that right? Yes, Calsters. Yeah, Calsters, and you know, and no, not to scare you too much, Calsters, and uh, some of the other California funds. They're not quite as bad as the Illinois funds, but they're not in great shape either. And they're not backed by the you know the the government federal government here. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, do you know how much you're going to be getting for uh, about six and a half years? What your monthly uh, payment's going to be? Um, I don't know the exact number, but it's going to be. Approximately like four thousand five hundred. Okay, yeah, that that sounds potentially uh, in the, the ballpark. Mm-hmm. What's your monthly expenses like right now? I am able to put away five hundred into a mutual fund, and I also have a TSA account, and Good. I usually um, am left over with about a thousand dollars. Okay, uh, but in terms of t- uh, total spending, um, how much do you th- uh, do? You, do you currently have a mortgage? Yes. Okay. Will that be done in, in six and a half years from now, or are you going to still have that? No, no. Um, in fact, I just refinanced uh, a couple months ago. Okay. Um, so yeah. add, add your mortgage and kind of how much you need for eating bills and so forth. If you had to tighten the belt, how much? what would your expenses be per month? If I had to tighten my belt, yeah. probably about 3500 3500 Okay. So it's possible uh-huh. that you could live... Um, um, below that $4,500 a month. You said yeah. um, on top of the pension you, you have some type of 401k or 403b like type plan. Um, how much have you saved in that? Unfortunately, um, I've only been putting into that for about the last uh, seven years sure. or so. Sure, yeah. Well, uh, and how much uh, is that, Ben? Well, I've been... Uh, Two hundred dollars a month, so I put in two thousand two hundred a year. Yeah, and so if you accumulate maybe fifteen twenty thousand, how much have you accumulated so far? Uh, it's just under ten. Under ten thousand. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, um, it, it, so that your question basically is it really about how to optimize the Social Security claiming? Uh, what 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 do you think is uh, what would if you had yeah. to boil it down? What would be your question? Yes, that's that's my question because I when you were talking to the other lady, I didn't even realize that. I thought, oh, right when I retire, I'll start claiming social security yeah. on myself and my and my um, spouse. And then I was listening to what you said to her, and I thought, well, you know what, I I think I could plan this that I could actually hold off. Yeah, and let me ask you: Are you willing to work kind of part time after you retire? You know, uh, or do you really just want to f- full full uh, stop retire? No, I I've thought about working part time. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you, you said you you had some earnings based on your own earnings history. Um, how many years were you working outside of the school system? I have I'll have thirty years in the school system. Inside the school system, what about outside? I assume you haven't been contributing to Social Security while you're in the school system. Yeah, uh, actually, yes, I have because for about twenty years I worked summer school. And summer school was not in the school. Ah, yeah. 
Yeah, so I was paying into Social Security for all those years I was teaching summer school. Uh, for summer school, okay. So, um, and then for, for 20, 20 years, but that's the only, um, uh, that's the main contributions you've been making to Social Security, right? Yeah, well, yeah. no, I worked um, I worked as a waitress in, in college and, and how, various how, jobs. How many years? I'm going to say 10. Okay, so let me, I was trying to figure out, because you know, there's a couple of rules here with Social Security. You have to have at least 10 years of coverage. Those 20 uh-huh. years uh, of summer school, they're not, they're not going to count as 10 years of coverage, so right. before you collect anything. Um, your husband, it sound, uh, he was a contributing, a regular job, contributing to Social Security for um, quite a while? Yes, I'm not even sure on the exact number on that, but yes. Yeah, but he wasn't a school teacher. He was contributing to Social Security. Yeah. And uh, yeah. what age did he pass away at? Uh, 49. 49. Okay. So, as obviously, was not um, uh, collecting on, on Social Security. Um, so, David, this is a little more specialized uh, question dealing with Social Security itself. Uh, the claiming hasn't started. Um, uh, your kind of maybe high level thoughts on uh, how Jenny should be approaching. Let's, uh, if you want you to, you can punt the Social Security question back to me. Um, but I, I think it's a bigger question about planning for retirement that I could use your uh, thoughts on. Well, Jenny, I I think, first of all, you can contact the Social Security Administration and basically find out what your husband's benefit is and then compare it to your own. Yeah. You you cannot get both of your benefits. You can just get the higher of the two. Uh, And typically, but as Ken is saying, there's really three different dates in terms of taking Social Security. One is 62, one is 66-ish, and one is 70. And it's really trying to identify from a cash flow point of view that if you can delay taking the benefit, then at, at 66, you would be getting roughly 100% of the benefit. At 70, if you could wait that long, depending on cash flow and, and other assets, you would be collecting as much as 130% of what you would be receiving at 66. So as Ken is saying, it's, it's absolutely correct. It's, it's two questions because, number one, it's how much do you get? Number two is when should you take it? And number three are really what are some of the exigent circumstances in regard to whether or not you're even able to financially delay taking. Yeah, yeah, no, it's perfect. In, in particular, Jenny, here's how I break it down. So if your husband were alive, um, then it really becomes a question of what is more valuable, 50% of his benefit, sometimes it's called a spousal um, benefit, versus um, the benefit that's calculated under your own earnings record. Um, it, it's almost certainly the case, given that he was not a school teacher, that you're not going to uh, be collecting the spousal benefit or collect on your own benefit, what happens when the spouse dies, um, uh, the other spouse gets to inherit that benefit. So uh, I forgot to ask you, Jenny, how long were you guys married for before uh, uh, before he passed? 17 years. 17 years. Okay. There's also a 10-year rule about that. So you will definitely uh, be taking over, not his spousal benefit, won't be 50% of his benefit. You'll actually be taking over his entire benefit. And so um, what's going to happen is, and that's almost certainly going to be bigger than your own individual qualification here. Um, And so it's almost certainly going to be the case, your best option here is not to take it at age 62. So uh, Paul, uh, David gave you the numbers going from age 66 to 
0.870 to roughly a 30% and change kind of increase. Taking that 62 is actually a big haircut. And in particular, it's almost an 80% difference in the size of benefit between 62, claiming at 62, and claiming at 70. And the real reason why you want to claim the 70, uh, postpone the 70 as much as possible, if you can make it work um, with, and it sounds like you probably can with this pension um, um, uh, benefit that you're going to be getting at age 61 and a half, and maybe doing some part-time stuff if you need more money and so forth. Um, the real reason uh, you're going to probably going to be, and I ask you about the retirement health plan uh, in your in your school. That's the one thing that you'd have to kind of uh, worry about um, if that you're covered with that, and if not, um, you know, maybe supplement your income a little bit or f- uh, figuring that out. Maybe going uh, ACA something like that. But the the real benefit is that if once you, your Kelster's uh, pension is not going to be indexed for inflation, so what's going to happen over time that forty five hundred dollars is going to erode a little bit in value. It's, you know, inflation is a call. We call it death by a thousand cuts. At least that's what I call it because it just erodes value slowly over time. But 2% inflation over 25 years erodes 40% of the value of the underlying assets. It really subtle but really compounds. So what's going to happen, that pension benefit from Kelster is it's going to erode in value over time. But then um, (laughs) at the right moment, you turn age 70, you click on Social Security, you're going to get a bigger benefit at that time. Um, and on top of that, it's going to be indexed for inflation over time. And so you're going to get a bigger benefit that's indexed for inflation going forward at kind of the time, you know, when that other benefit from CalSTRS is going to start to erode a bit in value due to inflation. And so as much as possible, try to organize your life to take Social Security um, at age uh, at 70. A uh, website that I often recommend that people go to when they get close to Social Security uh, or when they get close to retirement. I have zero financial interest in this website. Um, is MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com. It's a friend of mine, Larry Kotlikoff, written many papers together. We've had him on the show probably more than any other guest. But again, zero uh, financial interest. Uh, 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 interest in that company, but he does a lot of these calculations, especially more complicated if you actually did have a living spouse of how to do optimal claiming strategy. But in your case, and it's like, I forget what he charged, 40 bucks or something like that to do an evaluation uh, online. But nonetheless, um, uh, it's almost certainly going to be your game plan is to figure out how to get to age 70 uh, with their pension and anything else, um, and then turn on the switch for Social Security at that point, because you'll be collecting his benefits. Now, keep in mind, and this is the issue too, is that um, this is the part I need to look up. I'm, man, I used to know this stuff. It's pretty embarrassing given I helped a, a, a political point and I was even uh, given advice to the Social Security Commission a long time ago. I'm trying to remember if it is you turning age 70 or when your husband would have turned age 70. That is a good question. Oh. You call up the Social Security Administration and ask them that because I confess, I completely forgot what that rule is, my guess is when you turn age 70 because you've inherited it right already, his claiming history, but I would verify that because now I feel only 90% sure uh, about that, but I would, I, would, I, would, I would find that out. Is that helpful, Jen, Jenny? Okay. 
yes, thank you so much. Yeah, th- I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for calling. I really appreciate it. And again, speaking to David Frisch, who's the president of Frisch Financial Group, New York, New York, and live on Tuesdays here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. David, not to put you on the spot, do you actually do you know the rule? Is it him seventy or her seventy? Do you know? I think I'm not positive. I think you're right um, in in what you said to her, but. Yeah, uh, I, I think the bigger question is that she simply understands that in the example, yeah. if we could put a number example, that if she was going to collect a thousand dollars, just keeping the math real simple, yeah. at sixty-six, uh, she'd be getting about seven hundred and fifty dollars at age sixty-two versus thirteen hundred dollars if she waited until seventy. Yeah. So when you said the eighty percent differential between the sixty-two and seventy, I think that's the thing she really needs to keep in mind if yeah. she can afford to kind of wait and hold on and elect Social Security later. Yeah, and it's it's one of those benefits. It just keeps paying until you die, and one of the few benefits along with military pension and federal uh, pension benefits that actually indexes to inflation. Again, speaking with David Frisch, doing a great job answering your questions. Here is the president of Frisch Financial Group in uh, New York and uh, surrounding locations. Give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And let me go to Sue calling from Oregon. How can we help you, Sue? Yeah, hi. Um, I have a grandson who's graduating from college this year, Mm. and I want to give him um, something of a lasting gift and start uh, his financial knowledge, if you will. How uh, you Um, not a good pat on the back and congratulations. I love you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Here's my question. (laughs) I'm considering taking. $10,000 out of a non-qualified, non-IRA tax-deferred annuity, paying the taxes, and um, setting up a SEP IRA for him, and then funding it with a small amount, $50 or $100, and, you know, gifting and all of that Christmas, and having him involved in the paperwork and all of that. Um, What do you think of that? And question B, is there something better that you can think of? Yeah, and I'm curious, why do you think of a SEP um, IRA versus like a Roth IRA, something like that? What's your, do you have a particular reason for that? No. Oh, okay. You know, it's more, more of a concept. Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 so SEP IRAs are typically when you have money like 1099 miscellaneous income, like uh, something that you don't get with a W-2 form. Um, it's what self-employed people would typically um, use. And also, y- you have to actually have income. So if you're putting the money in for him, it, it needs to be a, no more, no greater than, for example, 25% of his actual income up to a limit of 50-some thousand um, uh, bucks. So you're open to things like, you know, Roth IRA, um, uh, things like that. And why would you be, it sounds like you, um, at first you were saying you're going to do a kind of, it sounded like big lump sum big bang here and ten thousand dollars would be probably too much because you go above uh, the contribution limits for like a Roth IRA Um, or but then is hearing you more it sounds like you maybe are willing to uh, whittle it out over you know a couple years Uh, so what's your strategy you want to put it all in right now when they when he graduates or do you want to uh, essentially fund it over time uh, actually, both, and it's more of a concept. Okay. I just, you know, ten thousand dollars. I wanted to do, 
something that was a little bit more significant. Okay. But there's um, limits and all of that. I'll I'll do that. And yeah. all of my income is RMD, um, ten ninety nine dividend stuff like that. Okay. So you said if uh, the ten thousand from a tax deferred, that was something I was going to probe too. I mean, do you actually have to uh, use that, or you if you have RMD income, you could potentially use that as well. Oh, I could, but I spend all my RMD you spend and then some. Okay, so. all right. Okay, <laughs> no, that's an honest. That's an honest answer. No, I appreciate. I've actually got about seven. Oh, just over seven hundred thousand in this um, non-qualified um, annuity, yeah. and it's fine. You know, while you're as you know, while you're alive, it's a great vehicle to accumulate. It's not so good when you pass away. Yeah. Well. And. Um, and there's yeah, other issues. So that's why I'm trying yeah. to and this, it down. And there's other issues even when you're alive. And I assume, because since you're taking RMDs, you're above age 70, and taking the money for the tax, the, uh, uh, the non-qualified plan, it's mainly going to be about generating income tax uh, uh, for you. Uh, do you ha What is your RMDs right now? Like a total amount of money that you're um, getting from RMDs, how much is that per year? Um, let me see. Maybe my total income last year was 151,000. Um, I think my RMD must be um I'd have to look. Okay. Maybe 70. Okay, 000, but your total house income like was 151. That so that's beyond RMDs. You're making you're you're currently working? No, uh, oh. no. I'm I'm retired. Okay. No, I take it out of Iris. Iris. Okay. All right. Fine. Fine. Because you know, that it, t taking out an additional ten thousand, we're talking about on top of the fifteen hundred fifty-one thousand else. Let me ask you uh, another question: uh, Is does your uh, grandson is he graduating with school debt, or is he um, kind of no, no debt, no debt, no. Uh -uh. So that hence that's no debt. That's that's yeah, no the, that's the whole reason why you kind of want to potentially think about doing um, something like a, a Roth or something like that. And does he have a job yet? No. <laughs> no, no job yet. Okay, uh, but I assume you know um, he's he's out there pounding the pavements looking for looking for work. Well, he graduates in June, June. so he's got a couple of couple uh, of months. months. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh -uh. No. Okay. I've um, paid most of his, most of my grandkids' college along with their parents. Oh, that's so good. Good. And do you know does he is is he just looking in the local areas? He can have to move, you know, things like that. I asked him that. Yeah. Um, he's graduating in mechanical engineering, and he told me he would move. Yeah. Well, you know, it's great degree, and the fact that he's willing to move. Um, there's some thoughts there um, on what to do with your money as well. So, David, your thoughts, you know, Sue, these are the main, uh, review the main thoughts, you know, uh, yeah, essentially I, she just wants to do something. I think, you know what, Sue, and, and I think the answer is you don't necessarily have to do the same thing every year. Yeah. Because I, I think what Ken is saying is correct in that the only way you can contribute to your grandson's Roth IRA is if there's earned income. Yeah. Let's assume he doesn't get a job in 2018 and there's no earned income then a Roth IRA is not possible for the calendar year 2018 but it may very well be possible or likely for 2019 and beyond so I think what potentially you may want to do and I'm just gonna make up a couple of of numbers here but if you're gonna take out ten thousand dollars from the annuity 
um, and you're going to pay, let's say, $2,500 of tax as a result of taking it out, the other $7,500, you can just write a check to him and let him do whatever he wants to do with it. Yeah. Um, or... That's, or, about the, that's about the last thing I want to do. <laughs> okay, well then, if, if that's the case, I mean, you can do anything from delaying a gift. Yeah. Um, you can also, and I don't know if you know you have an attorney, but you can create a trust, and yeah. you can deposit money on an annual basis into the trust and potentially have um, your child or, or your grandson's parent uh, control the trust, or you can control the trust. Um, it's it's flexible. No. It's what's that? No, uh, no. I want to start him. Um, you know, he thinks like minute to minute. I mean, he's a college student. Um, I well, that's what I'm saying. The trust would would control that he wouldn't have access to the money. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's it's certainly it, it, the trust is a way of creating rules around how you can use the money. Um, a lot of people don't think about a trust vehicle for an amount as low as ten thousand dollars. I mean, but I think David's on the, exactly the right point, and that is um, you probably wait. You're gonna have to wait and see what happens with him getting a job. My guess, mechanical engineering willing to move, uh, likely he's going to be able to land a job in 2018, have enough income where you're going to do the Roth, um, you know, later on in the year or even, you know, uh, before paying taxes next year. But, you know, the, the thing that I would really uh, recommend at this point, Sue, because it sounds like there's maybe some trust issues as well in terms of, you know, what he would do with the money if you just gave him a check. Um, if, if the $10,000 is not going to be something you're doing every single year, it's going to be uh, it's a one-time, get-you-started type of thing. Maybe don't do it all this year anyway. Spread it out over a few years. If it is something you're going to be perpetually um, uh, doing, maybe at least in the first year until you gotta get your, uh, you know, get the bearings set, um, just tell them, hey, you know, I'm willing to give you up to $10,000 or whatever amount um, this year, $7,500 this year, depending on how you're going to be on the tax side with it. So you want to really tell them on the after-tax uh, portion of this. I'm willing to give you $7,500 this year, um, but I'm going to write the check as receipts come in. Maybe it's reimburse you for moving, for taking the new job. Uh, maybe it's you know rewarding you for <laughs> visiting me. 500 bucks a visit. No, I'm kidding on that one. But nonetheless, I think you you know you the first year until you know he has an IRA set up and or he's allowed to set up an IRA. Maybe just you know play it loose and tell him well, here's here's what the limit is, but I'm not paying for trips to Colorado and skiing and other things in Colorado. Um, what I'm willing to pay for, maybe it's Oregon now too, uh, but what I'm willing to pay for is kind of reimbursing, you know, expenses associated with moving or the other things that you think is a priority. So thanks so much for calling. Sorry we're at the end of the segment. David, fantastic job. Thanks for coming on the show. And you can find out more about David by going to his website, which is Frisch financial.com again fresh financial all one word uh, dot com and fresh is f-r-i-s-c-h financial.com i think my little florida for guests today phil reed paul ryans and of course david frisch our the engineer tatia zamis and michelle stucker my producer we'll see you next tuesday 5 p.m for more guest interviews check out our wharton business radio highlights podcast on itunes and google play